The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Three, Hunger Season. Chapter 13, Looking for Signs. The sound of a heavy zipper woke Martin from a light sleep. Margaret stood near the closet, adjusting the sleeves of her thick sweater. The room wasn't as dark as he expected. The dark curtains were pulled back, allowing the blue-gray of dawn to shine through. Huh? Hey, uh, hey, uh, wh what time is it? He fumbled with his watch on the nightstand. Oh, did I wake you up? No, oh, sorry. It's almost seven. Seven? He threw off the covers, but quickly pulled on his cargo pants before the chill got to him. Chills were hard to shake once they settled in. I thought you might want a little sleep in, she said. You were out pretty late last night with the radio and that fire and all. Oh, can't sleep in, Martin pulled on his wool socks. There's never enough day to get it all done as it is. His stomach growled loud enough for them both to hear. Ah, I guess that means you'll want some breakfast, she smiled. Everyone else has had theirs. They left your portion in the pot. Martin followed Margaret out to the wood stove. He lifted the lid off the pot with one hand while buttoning his flannel shirt with the other. I guess that's what I get for going last. Margaret peered into the pot. Oh, no, that looks like a full portion. She spooned the wheat mush into a measuring cup. See, two-thirds of a cup just like everyone else. And here's your ounce of smoked fish for your proteins. Martin set his meager breakfast on the table. A few weeks into the crisis, he stopped feeling the gnawing hunger. His body adjusted to the new, lower intake. The plateau didn't last. The growing cold, the harder work, even the added darkness, somehow all conspired to bring on a new hunger. The new hunger was more of an ache, and an irrational craving. If he had lived alone, it would be easy to have gorged himself on supplies in an effort to quiet that ache. He was glad he didn't live alone. The tighter ration started today, huh? He sat and stared at his portion. Yes, Margaret said. No one is happy about it, but after the corn disappeared, this is what my calculation said. It's below our daily needs. Even at this reduced rate, We'll only make it to the end of January. On the bright side, Andy was grubbing around in the snow out on the knoll. He came back with some wintergreen. She poured a cup of what looked like simply hot water. Wintergreen tea, she said. It's not much to look at, but it's got a little flavor and some vitamin C. Well, we'll need all of that that we can get. Martin sipped the hot tea. Hmm, not much to it. Oh, just wait, she said. Whoa, a seriously minty aftertaste just kicked in. <laughs> nice. Andy stood outside the back door, knocking. Margaret let him in. Oh, hey, thanks, Mrs. Nooser. And a neighborly good morning to you, too. Oh, hey, Mr. Nooser. You don't have to knock, Andy, Martin said. You're part of this household, too, now. Oh, geez, thanks. He leaned his crutch against the table as he awkwardly plopped into Margaret's chair. Oh, you guys have been so awesome, nice. Oh, you really have. Thanks a ton. Oh, the shed is super cozy. Oh, I gotta say, it's kind of a Taj Palace. That little stick stove that you made works super. Oh, oh, hey, I see you're trying my winter green tea. Oh, yeah, what do you think? Andy leaned close to watch Martin take another sip. 
It's good, Andy. Nice to have some hot flavor again. I do miss my coffee, though. Uh, yeah, well, we got caught a bit short this year. What with the snow and the ground freezing and stuff, Andy said. We could have roasted some dandelion roots for coffee. Yeah, sort of too late now, though. But you have a nice patch of wintergreen up on that little hill there. If that gets thin, we might have to move on to pine needles. It's not as tasty, but still got some vitamin C and all. Merton continued to eat his breakfast while Andy spoke. Acorn hunting is kind of running out out there. Little Amigo and I scoured the ground under all the oak trees we could find. I'm saving the last of them to roast up for Christmas. Yeah, that'll be my Christmas present to all you guys. Yeah, it's not quite like chestnuts roasting on an open fire like the song says, but they'll taste better than a song, uh, which actually doesn't have a taste, uh, being audio. Uh, but you know what I mean. They'll be nice. He rubbed his hands together with glee. And I plan to make a Christmas treat, too, announced Margaret. Custard. We haven't had custard in ages. Christmas is the ideal time for the treat. I've been saving eggs. Huh? How? Martin interrupted. There's only been one a day. Uh, I thought the hens had really shut down for the winter. An egg a day out of all seven of them? Well, that's not hardly worth the feed. Well, sometimes it's been two a day, Margaret said. I set a few aside. They're each down to laying an egg every third or fourth day. I've seen them all in the nest, uh, except... Except Gimpy, Martin finished her sentence. He wiped his bowl out with his finger and sucked off the last traces of wheat mush. The bowl was almost clean enough to put back in the cupboard. I'm afraid so, continued Margaret with sad eyes. I feel bad for her. Well, you, you can't feel bad for them, Margaret. They're chickens. They're livestock. That's why we try not to give them names, like Gimpy. I know, but she just stood out. She didn't let those curled toes slow her down. She managed to assert herself enough to stay in the middle of the pecking order. Well, I kind of admired her spunk. She never let her gimpy foot stop her. Hmm, and that's why you talked me out of harvesting her last fall. Martin picked the small fish flakes off his plate. But her laying went down over the summer, like I said it would. She's past her good laying days. I know, I know, and now she hasn't laid anything since her molt. I was doing some food calculating of my own, Martin said. We don't have enough feed for all of the chickens to get through to spring. They're already on short rations. Their bin is empty by afternoon. Andy gasped. Oh, you're not thinking of doing in this gimpy, are you, Mr. No, sir? Oh, you wouldn't hurt the handicap, though, would you? I never like harvesting, Andy. But every animal has their time. Gimpy would have been fox food for sure in the wild. But here in our flock, she's had a good four years of free-ranging, a dry, safe place to sleep, and at least a few other hens to boss around. All in all, a pretty good chicken life. But if she stays, all the other hens get less feed. They could get sick from lack of nutrition. Sometimes one has to go for the sake of the rest. Oh, the bottom of the circle of life is so noir, you know, Andy frowned at the table. But there's some honor in being Christmas dinner, Martin offered. Of course, one four-pound hen isn't going to go far among nine people. But on the bright side, we'll all get a good taste of real chicken for a change. Talk of food was making Martin's stomach growl again. His little breakfast did little to soften the ache. Martin pulled the clipboard over for a distraction. 
I see Anna is on watch. Lucas and Judy are sleeping from the night shift. Carlos and Susan are on patrol now. Well, actually, Dustin traded with Carlos, Margaret said. Carlos is in the garage. He wanted to finish up his gift for Lucas. She glanced down the hallway to see that their door was closed, then leaned close enough to whisper. He's making a gas pump to go with Lucas's wooden race car. But don't say anything, though. Oh, hey, I won't. Andy beamed at possessing secret knowledge. Margaret rolled her eyes. She wasn't talking to him. Well, see that you don't, she scolded in jest. So, Martin, I need to go to the dairy to get my allotment of milk. Need more for my custard. You're probably going to insist on accompanying me, right? Oh, darn right. He tossed back the last of his tea. Won't let you travel alone. Besides, I want to check things out in the daylight. That was a totally suspicious fire. Oh, hey, you two run along. I think I've got an idea to add to Christmas dinner. Yeah, but I won't say what it is just yet. Martin walked behind Margaret as they followed the narrow path through the snow on Baldwin's meadow. It was easier to keep a watch with her ahead of him. There was little danger near home, but he kept his hand on the carbine's grip and his thumb on the safety nonetheless. I think I got spoiled with Jen and her buggies, said Margaret over her shoulder. Yeah, she said something about taking a trip into Nutfield, Martin said. Guess she's going to try the trading thing there. Martin and Margaret followed the narrow path beside the highway. Two wheel ruts straddled the trail of many hoof marks that led down the center of the highway. Other footpaths veered off at angles, marking shortcuts people used. Margaret turned down one such side trail. It was the same shortcut that Martin and Susan followed as they reached home on that third day of the outage. Are you sure this way will be passable with the snow? Martin asked. Oh, sure. I've been down this way a few times to get to the dairy for our milk. Apparently others are using it, too. It's pretty well packed down now, as you can see. Near the bottom of the shallow saddle between Stockman Hill and Wilson Hill, the path crossed a creek. Martin could see two men on the same path, slowly coming their way. For an obscure shortcut, this is a busy little trail, Martin thought. As the men got closer, he recognized them. Paul, Red, Martin called out. What brings you out here? Ah, looking for tracks, said Red. He studied the path carefully. This morning I was down looking to see if there were any tracks that might lead us to whoever tried to burn down my barn. If you're way out here, I'm guessing you found some, Martin asked. I think we did, right, Paul? Yes, the snow is pretty well trampled down all around the barn. There was nothing leading away toward the woods. Up near the road we spotted a couple of odd prints with big curvy triangles in the sole. Checking with everyone at the dairy, all of those who came down from the town farm to help, well, no one's boots had them curvy triangles. So we figured they belonged to our firebug, said Red. Two good prints pointed toward Wilson Hill. Away from the town farm, added Paul. The guy stuck to well-trodden paths said Red. The guy? Martin interrupted. You're pretty sure it was a man, then? Well, she'd be one heck of a big girl, based on the shoe size, said Red. Call me a sexist, but yeah, I figure it's a man. Kind of a big one. Anyhow, 
since the footpaths are so packed, they didn't leave much for any prints, but we did get a couple of partials where he got a bit off to one side. Looked like he was headed for Wilson Hill. Then the stray clue prints, they just disappeared, said Paul. Either he got better about not slipping off to one side, or he turned off somewhere. We checked the houses along the path that had their own little spur paths, but no one saw anything. Nor did any of them have any boots with curvy triangles, added Red. I asked in my usual polite manner. Martin smiled. Red had a reputation for being brusque and impatient, not polite. We were trying this shortcut path, said Paul. So far, we've not seen any signs that he came this way either. Uh, maybe he left a false trail toward Wilson Hill, Martin wondered out loud. Then double back to Town Farm or Walnut Hill? You see, said Red to Paul, it's not such a foolish idea. He thought of it too. Okay, okay, Paul surrendered. If we don't see any other signs on the top of Wilson Hill, we'll look for a double back. We'll keep an eye peeled for curvy triangles as we walk, too, Martin said. Uh, we're off to the dairy for some more milk. Yeah, Red said with reservation. Uh, the girls didn't give much this morning. I think the fire spooked them. Still had two that didn't want to let down yet. Uh, maybe they have by now. Yeah, well, see you later. The dairy farm was a beehive of activity as they approached. Margaret helped coax the two late cows to let down their milk. Martin joined in the work of replacing the badly burned boards of the barn siding. The fence on the cow pen near the road was made of one-by-tens. It was the perfect source for replacement siding. One side of the pen sat lower than the road, so someone strung yellow rope between the posts to keep people from falling off the retaining wall and into the mucky cow pen. Red and Paul returned, having seen no further signs. Red wanted to follow the trail toward Walnut Hill to look for more signs. Paul needed to return to Town Farm. Martin accompanied him. I recognized most of the people who came from the farm to help. Not everyone came, though, said Martin. No, a couple were sick or busy, and some stayed to guard the place. Uh, was everyone accounted for? Martin asked. Not that I'm accusing anyone, mind you, but could it have been someone from the farm? I don't know. But I plan to check the boots when we get there, said Paul. I'm going to start in the house. I'd like to peek in on the folks in the barn, said Martin. I'll be up in a few minutes. Martin entered the dark barn and waited for his eyes to adjust. Several people were huddled near their wood stove. Martin warmed his hands and made conversation. People were theorizing over how the fire could have started. One man was certain that Candace started the fire. He and Candace had a mutual dislike for each other after a few heated political discussions. The man's wife told him Candace rode with Jen to Nutfield the day before, so she couldn't possibly have set the fire. Trying not to look obvious, Martin glanced around at people's boots. It wasn't a complete sample, but no one wore boots with curved triangles on the sole. On his way to the door, Trevor waved from his little corner room. He put a finger to his lips and motioned for Martin to come over. Oh, hi, Trevor, Martin whispered. What's up? Hey, man, something kind of freaky going on. I don't know what to think of it, but it sure ain't good. When I woke up this morning, I smelled something strange. I looked around. I saw a bottle of some clear junk with some rags right over there, tucked in behind that box. 
I ain't never seen them there before. They sure as hell weren't there last night, it lights out. Well, there's nothing there now, Martin observed. Yeah, I know, but I wasn't dreaming of nothing. They was there. I was awake. I saw em clear as day. Paul didn't lock my chain when we got back, so I went to the house to tell him about the bottle and the rags. When I goes to show them, yeah, they was gone. Why would you suspect Adam? Margaret asked. I mean, I know he's been a bit of a troublemaker around the town farm, but why would he try to burn down the dairy? That makes no sense. Besides, from what Red was saying, Adam is too small to be the culprit. Yeah, yeah, Martin frowned, and his boots are nothing like the suspects. I checked. Plus, he had an airtight alibi. He was up all night with Mrs. Webster, tending to a sick resident. As much as I could see it, Adam couldn't have been the firebug. You've got that look, Margaret said. Do you still think he did something? I do, but I can't say what. Paul said he's been ragging on Trevor ever since he arrived. Granted, Trevor's no Boy Scout, but Adam's been using him as a lever to stir discontent. I could easily see Adam trying to pin the blame for the fire on Trevor, just out of meanness, if nothing else. But it's not like Paul can say anything. Trevor is the only one who saw the bottle of kerosene and rags. It's his word against anyone else's, and Trevor doesn't have any standing in the group. But you believe him? Well, thus far, yes. The fire couldn't have been going more than a few minutes before we happened by. Jen picked Trevor up from the town farm a few minutes later. No way he could have gotten back to the farm that fast, and not left any footprints in the snow. It could be that whoever planted the bottle in the rags changed their mind when they realized there wasn't enough time for Trevor to light the fire and get back to the farm for Jen to pick him up. Hmm, Margaret hesitated. Speaking of time, if Gimpy is going to be Christmas dinner, you should do your processing very soon. She's kind of old. The meat will need to rest for at least a full day and slow cook in the pot overnight. Hmm, Martin frowned. Processing was always a serious matter. Are you going to want a big pot of hot water? she asked. No, no plucking this time. She's not for roasting but bound for the slow pot. I'll just skin her. Martin always marveled how animals somehow knew that a harvesting was about to take place. The chicken scattered as if he were a hawk. He cornered Gimpy in the run. From the wild look in her eyes, she knew. How do they know? Do I have some grim reaper expression that they recognize? He held Gimpy in one arm, like she was a football, stroking her back calming her down. He carried her with some dignity, unlike the cranky roosters who went upside down, hanging by their feet. Martin brushed the snow off the big splitting log and sat down. He held her between his legs, head slightly down. All the while he spoke softly, reminiscing about how, when she hatched, he didn't think she was going to survive. Most chicks with birth defects don't last more than a day or two. Andy pushed open the door to the shed and peeked around. Oh, he said gravely. Yeah, it's circle of lifetime, huh? It is, said Martin, without looking up. He waited for Andy to withdraw, but he didn't. Uh, could I attend your little ceremony? 
Andy asked hesitantly. I mean, it, it kind of looks like you're being all ceremonial, you know, not just chopping off heads and stuff. If it's okay, I mean, uh, if you'd rather uh, have your space uh, and all, I understand, because it's up to you, Andy. I'm sure Gimpy wouldn't mind a send-off. Andy sat quietly on another section of firewood. He folded his hands in his lap. Martin stroked the hen's back with one hand and talked softly, as if the bird could understand his thanking her for all the eggs in the past and her future contribution to the household. His other hand held his processing knife. While he spoke, he made a smooth slit behind her jaw. The hen flinched a little, but Martin shushed her back to calmness. The snow between his feet became spattered with red. He kept talking softly until she closed her eyes and stopped breathing. Her wings started to flap reflexively, but Martin held her down. He waited until she had been motionless for several minutes. Uh, that's it, Andy. That's the bottom of the circle of life. You probably don't want to stay for the rest. Oh, no, I guess not. Mara was the meat-eater in our group. She was one serious paleo, I tell you, a real cavewoman type. I could never watch her work either. Still, thanks for letting me sit in. Yeah, life deserves dignity, you know. Yeah, that had dignity. Andy returned to the shed, walking solemnly. Martin didn't often dispatch one of his chickens with such gravity. The ornery roosters got a hasty chop. Still, it seemed fitting for Gimpy to get a quiet end. Martin set about the skinning and dressing with his male detachment engaged. No time to think about the past, only the future. Martin was rinsing off the chicken in the sink when Dustin and Susan returned from their patrol. The normally quiet house was temporarily noisy with the stomping snow off boots, zippers, and the swish of nylon over nylon. Oh, we saw something interesting out there this time, said Dustin. Margaret handed him a cup of wintergreen tea. Oh, like what? Martin was curious. Dustin's demeanor suggested that he saw something more interesting than alarming. We saw something moving in the woods, beyond the little river. I saw it too, added Susan. Uh, a person? Martin asked. Oh, couldn't tell. It was never distinct enough. It was maybe fifty yards away, but through all the trees you never got more than a glimpse. We hadn't seen anything interesting on this side of the river, so we decided we'd cross over and check it out. Susan nodded agreement as she unwrapped her long scarf. We went to that wide spot and crossed over on the rocks. The river was flowing plenty fast, but not too high. Dustin sat down to take off his wet boots. The snow isn't very deep at all in the deeper woods, but there was enough snow to show dog tracks. They were crisscrossing the woods. And there were bootprints, too. Well, sort of, added Susan. She pulled off her wet boots, too. Sort of? Well, they didn't have any print to them, said Dustin. Just kind of a round, soft pad. Nothing distinct, even in the undisturbed snow. The pacing was human, though, Susan said. She took a cup of the wintergreen tea, too. I'm not sure if what I saw was human or an animal, or if I just felt it. I know it sounds crazy, said Dustin, but I felt it, too, always just out of sight. Then we found the blood, Susan said gravely. Blood? How much blood? asked Margaret. Well, not a lot, but we saw there were dog tracks meandering along 
up to this spot where most of the snow had been thrashed off the leaf litter. There was some blood on the leaves, and in what little snow remained. We found a set of those round prints that led up to that thrashing spot, and then led away. At least we guessed which set was coming and which was going. They're kind of round, so it's hard to say which way they go, added Susan. The dog track stopped, continued Dustin, so we figure whoever made those pad prints killed the dog and carried it off. Weird, huh? Martin nodded. It certainly seemed plausible that someone was supplementing their household's meat supply by hunting. He knew there were still some occupied houses farther north. When he patrolled the woods, he hadn't noticed many dog tracks on their side of the little river. Perhaps there were more abandoned pets or stray dogs on the other side that never felt inclined to cross over. We crossed back over the little river and finished our patrol. There was nothing else to report on, no other people tracks. We saw a few squirrel prints, maybe a fox. It was kind of small, though. Well, thanks for the report, Martin said. He returned to the sink and resumed rinsing out the body cavity of the chicken. Is that gimpy? Susan asked as she stared at the carcass. Uh, yes. Ah, uh, I liked Gimpy, she said sadly. I know, she was a good hen, Martin sighed. He didn't look forward to justifying his harvest. But it was time. We'll run out of feed before the grass comes back in, if we kept them all. One of them needed to go for the sake of the others. She was getting old and hadn't laid any eggs for a few months now. So she was the logical choice. Yeah, but still. No, but still. This'll be our Christmas dinner. He was careful to stop referring to the carcass as a she. It's going to a worthy cause. I know, but... He put the chicken in a plastic bag and then into the fridge. He set it beside the ice buckets on the upper shelf. Hey, Martin brightened up. He had thought of a distraction. Remember that bridge you were telling me about? The one that you rode your bike across to get the free ice cream? Yeah. Can you show me where it is on a map? Martin dried his hands. He flipped open a road atlas to the pages for Massachusetts and laid it on the table. I guess so, she said. I'm not very good with maps, though. Oh, that's okay. I can get you close, Martin said. You mentioned that you got your free ice cream from a Christian camp. Yeah. Well, when Dustin and Lindsay were small, for a few summers, they went to a Christian camp on the banks of the Connecticut River, very near where you grew up. I'll bet it was the same camp. He ran his finger along the map. This here is Wanamaker Road. It leads up to Camp Wanamaker, well, naturally enough. If you got here, where did you cross the river? Susan squinted and frowned at the map for several long moments. Her finger traced along one line, abandoned it, and then followed another. She closed her eyes to stare into memories. I think it must be right here. She pointed at a spot on the river. This little stub of a road must lead up to the bridge. They just show it as a dead end. On the other side, I remember how we had to bike toward the river, then take a turn, just like this other road on the other side. She shrugged. The bridge must be right here, between them. Martin pulled the map over to study it more closely. You said your family lived in Greenfield after moving up from Turner's Falls. Here's Greenfield and the roads leading up to your bridge road. Okay, I think I see it now. 
I think we lived right, uh, here. Really? That's kind of a long way for a kid to ride her bike. I thought you said your dad was very protective. Oh, yeah, Margaret chimed in. You were telling me about that. Well, Dad was very protective, Susan said. But when I stayed over at Melissa's house, he, well, he wasn't there to worry so much. She mustered up a guilty smile. Melissa lived up here somewhere. Like I said, I'm not too good at maps. We would ride our bikes to the bridge, then lift them over this stupid guardrail they welded across the bridge. It was a perfectly good bridge. The town just decided to close it because they got scared about insurance or argued over who would pay the insurance or something stupid like that. Their solution was just to close the bridge. Our ice cream bridge. The indignation of childhood hadn't cooled. Then we'd ride up to Camp Wanamaker and they'd give us ice cream. We would play some games with the campers sometimes. Other times we'd ride back across the bridge and explore. Explore what? Martin said. There's not much on this west bank except this little intersection named Satan's Corner. Yeah, yeah, stupid name too, Susan said with a sniff. It's just a handful of dumpy houses and a bait shop. Uh, how bad could Satan be, we used to joke. He sells worms. So then what's to explore? The fire trails, she said with awe. That big empty green area on your map is just covered with the coolest fire trails and logging trails. Some of them were a bit rough, like a skidder had only gone through there once. Others were as clear and as solid as highways from all the log trucks, huge log trucks too, that went through the woods. Oh, Melissa and I had a great time riding our bikes around those trails. I took a trip back there last year before um, having to move to Boston just to see what the old stomping ground looks like. I was surprised how little had changed. Satan still sells worms. The bridge looked the same. It just had a lot more scrubby bushes grown up in front of it. I only went a little ways up the fire trails. It wasn't my car, after all. Fascinating, Martin pulled the map closer. He wondered if Malcolm's associates could use Susan's bridge to get the food trucks of Operation Longbow across the river. He frowned at the access roads to get to the bridge. Coming up from Greenfield wouldn't work. They'd be too easily seen. Perhaps coming down from Vermont would work. Judy climbed the stairs, zipping up her coat. I'm going up on the ridge, she announced. Walter usually comes on at the top of the hour. I want to see if he has any news. I'll come with you, said Martin. You better hurry, said Judy. He only stays on for a few minutes since he has very little gasoline left. Martin grabbed his coat, hat, and gloves. He put them on as he walked with Judy. She held his carbine while he put on his gloves. They stood atop the ridge, backs to the soft but stinging breeze. Static hissed from the radio. Judy checked her settings. K-1 NTZ, uh, Walnut Hill, the speaker crackled. K-1 NTZ B, Judy said into the mic. Hi, Walter. Uh, Newshawk, uh, do you ever go in the house? Uh, you're always on. Oh, not always, Walter. You're just teasing. Martin interrupted. Uh, hey, Walter, uh, this is Martin. I had a question for you and your uh, house guest. Uh, go ahead. 
I think I might have another way for him to reach his goal. It isn't too long and could be easier than tying Christmas bows. Martin hoped he was vague enough for an unencrypted transmission, but succinct enough to be understood. After a long pause, Walter came back on. Ah, house guest says he'd like to learn more. Can you come over the uh, day after Christmas? Uh, bring Scarecrow with you. Scarecrow? Judy whispered. Uh, he means Tin Man, Martin said. Uh, Roger that, Martin said into the radio. Uh, see you then. Martin handed the radio back to Judy, who did manage to get a few news bits out of Walter before his time was up. Two more ships had been added to the aid fleet. One of them was a retired destroyer. A government press release denounced the new ships. Judy stayed on the ridge to try and tune in for Boston Bob for his spin on the news. Martin returned to the house. Dustin had cut down a small hemlock to use as the Christmas tree. Being a natural tree, not pruned and groomed to be a Christmas tree, the little hemlock looked very sparse. It was taller than a Charlie Brown tree, but no more full. Dustin had appointed himself keeper of the Christmas traditions. He was stringing the scrawny tree with a set of LED lights. Margaret, always happy when decorating for a holiday, hung ornaments on the thin branches. Only the lightest weight of the family ornaments could be hung without causing unsightly drooping. Margaret and the Perez family decked the halls with pine garland that Andy had braided. The living room smelled of pine, vanilla from a candle, cinnamon cookies, and the beginnings of a chicken stock. Dustin had hooked up his car's battery to an inverter to run the tree's LED lights. While they helped Margaret string garland, the Perez family hummed a Christmas carol that no one else recognized. When they were done, Judy began singing jingle bells. Everyone joined in, singing heartily until it came to the second verse that no one seemed to know. Humming resumed. It was hard not to be in a festive mood, despite the lack of grid power. Two oil lamps, a candle, and some LED tree lights were plenty. When all was decorated, everyone gathered around the living room. Andy distributed mugs of wintergreen tea. Martin read from Luke 2, the account of Jesus' birth. He paused at the verse where the angel announced, Peace on Earth. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be too much uh, peace on earth these days, Andy mused out loud. True, Martin said quietly. He recalled killing the highway bandit a few weeks earlier. The lack of peace was up close and personal. But the peace the angel spoke of wasn't the absence of strife here on earth. That's been around since day one. Even more so these days. No, the peace the angel spoke of was peace with God. We're all born enemies of God, like Paul said in his book to the Romans. Despite that, God sent his Son as a bridge, a way that we can stop being his enemies. That's the peace. That's what we celebrate. Margaret began softly singing, O come all ye faithful. Others joined in for the first verse. Martin, Dustin, and Margaret knew the other verses, so they finished the carol as a family trio while the others listened. After a long silence, Carlos said, Amen. It was time to turn in. Far too early in the morning, Lucas knocked on everyone's bedroom door. You wake up, wake up, it's Christmas morning, wake up. 
Margaret pulled the quilt over her head. I thought we were done with that phase. I guess not, <sighs> Martin yawned. Uh, resistance is futile, as the Borg would say. Humph, <laughs> muttered Margaret under her quilt. The Borg don't celebrate Christmas. Well, if they did, you know what they'd say. Might as well get dressed. Lucas had roused everyone. He bounced around like he had downed a whole thermos of coffee. Everyone else sat around in the living room, scratching tousled hair, rubbing eyes, and, and passing on contagious yawns. I'll be the hander-outer of gifts, announced Lucas, and I will start with this one, which is for me. Anna cleared her throat. <coughs> Lucas, she said with a motherly glare. For a long moment, Lucas stared at his gift. He was like a dog with a treat balanced on his nose. He finally set the package under the tree and drew out another. This one is for you, Miss Judy. Everyone watched Judy peel away the paper. Old headphones? New and improved headphones, said Dustin with a big smile. I fixed them. They have the right jack on them now. You can use them with your radio. Judy gasped and squeaked out a, Really? before hugging Dustin. Judy crocheted a sling for Dustin's shotgun. Martin carved a long-handled wooden spoon for Margaret's on-the-fire cooking. She gave him a cup and a half of coffee beans. She traded some of her soft cheese with Pete. Anna made a scarf for Carlos. Lucas finally got to open his gift, the wooden gas pump his father had made of wood and painted. Lucas was ecstatic, showing it off to everyone. And he told everyone to look in their stockings. The night before, he had insisted that everyone clip one of their socks to the stair railing. Roasted acorns? Lucas asked. He didn't wait for the answer. He knew acorns. With his mouth full, he announced that there were cookies in his stocking, too. Margaret smiled. What about Miffoofen? Lucas's mouth was full of acorns and a cookie. Well, Susan began, I didn't know what I could do for all of you. I don't carve or crochet or sew or well, much of anything, really. So I decided I would give you all Christmas cards. What would Christmas be without Christmas cards, right? She handed a card to each. I found some colored pencils and some heavy paper in my room. Lucas showed his card to Anna. Oh, look, Mama, she thinks I'm funny. Anna smiled at Susan. Gracias. Margaret looked at Susan over the top of her card. You're welcome. You're a fast learner. Others thanked Susan for what she had written in their cards. On Martin's card, she had drawn a Santa wearing a red checkered flannel shirt, like the one that he had changed into during their walk north. Inside the card, she wrote, There's no way to say how much I appreciate all you've done. I wish I could do more. He looked up to see her watching him with her sad, puzzled eyes. The poker face was not engaged at the moment. I understand, he said, and you're welcome. She smiled. Fill her up, said Lucas in a deep voice. All the way full, too. Here's a hundred bucks. He held the tiny nozzle up to his wooden race car. And make it super maxima luxo premium, too. I've got a race to win. The little red car then sped around the living room floor, guided by its owner's hand. Vocal engine whine and tire squeal made up for the lack of mechanical sounds. I'd better get that custard going, 
Margaret excused herself to the kitchen. Anna joined her to help bake the bread. Andy excused himself to return to the shed. He teased about having a treat underway. The dining-room table looked sparse compared to prior Christmases. The deboned meat from a single chicken made for a small pile on a rather large plate. A steaming bowl of rice, a bowl of green beans, and a plate of sliced bread didn't cover much of the table surface. The pine boughs and pine cone centerpiece helped, but it was clearly a space filler. Everyone was seated at the table except Andy. He knocked at the back door. Why, I know you said I could just come in, Andy said. Yeah, but my hands were full. He set a covered metal pan on a potholder. And behold, for your holiday dining pleasure, I present to you, dum dum de dum he took off the cover, pine fries. What? Several people said in unison. Well, pine fries. Yeah, more specifically, lemon dill pine fries. They're my contribution to our uh, holiday feast and stuff. But what are they? Lucas asked. He held up one of the long, thin strips for close examination. Well, pine bark. Yeah, at least the inner layer. Yeah, it's edible, you know. You have a nice old white pine down there by the swamp. I only took a section of bark, though, so I didn't kill the tree. Ashley would freak out if she knew. Oh, tree lover, you see. Anyhow, I pulled off a section and peeled away the soft inner white bark. Comes off pretty easy when it's fresh. You can't eat that gray outer stuff. Well, I suppose you could, but it'd be really gross. Anyhow, I cut the white stuff across the grain because it's super chewy if you don't. That made like julienne fries, well, sort of. I fried those up on top of my little stick stove using some of the shortening that you had so much of. I gave him some lemon juice and dill, too, Margaret confessed. Oh, yeah, hey, well, that's not much taste otherwise. Still, a dash of spice, and there you have it, lemon dill pine fries. Andy held out his arms like a game show's auxiliary woman presenting the grand prize. Yeah, pretty festive, eh, right? Turned out I had a note on pine cambium in one of my reference books, Margaret said. I never noticed it before. Five hundred calories in a pound of pine bark. Maybe more if you count the oil. It's not calorie-rich like rice, but, but it's a source of carbs. Pine fries, huh? Martin crunched on one. It was like the canned shoestring potatoes, only more brittle. He hadn't realized it until then, how rare crunchy foods had become since the blackout. Wheat mush, bread, rice, hominy, beans. Even Anna's corn tortillas had a softness to them, perhaps because they never lasted long enough to harden. Uh, you could dry roast them, too, said Andy. I guess that's what some Native American tribes used to do when they lived on this stuff. I guess we could do that, too, if, if we had to. Both Margaret and Susan let out sighs before pushing the first fork of chicken meat in their mouths. Andy hesitated, but finally took a bite. Martin felt the chicken was a pleasant break for getting their daily 50 grams of protein. Beans and smoked fish were getting monotonous. The extra chicken meat, heart, liver, gizzard, would go toward future days' portions. Gimpy would be providing for several days. Martin thought the meat of older hens had more flavor, despite the tendency of being tough. Letting the meat rest a day or two in the cooler helped, as did the low and slow cooking. Quick roasting of an old hen only produced chicken-flavored leather. He did enjoy the flavor, but decided not to comment on that fact out loud. Margaret would continue to boil down the carcass and make a hearty stock that would liven up the rice. 
It was Martin's job to stir the stockpot, however, since it included the chicken feet. Feet added a natural thickener, which was nice. Nonetheless, Margaret didn't like looking at chicken feet in her pots. Even before Margaret brought out her holiday custard for dessert, Martin felt like he had eaten more in that one sitting than he had all week. The crunchy pine fries seemed filling. The custard was as close to a heavenly dessert as he could remember having. It was smooth and sweet, with a hint of vanilla and nutmeg. A fine drizzle of maple syrup on top was an artistic flourish. Food seldom got artistic flourishes anymore. It was a tacit agreement to ignore table manners. Everyone wiped their bowls with their fingers and sucked off the last of the custard. Lucas licked out his bowl like a dog, much to his mother's displeasure. That was going too far, apparently. Martin stepped into the box between the garage and the juniper. He had first night watch. Twilight had nearly yielded to night. He pulled his thick stocking cap down over his forehead and ears. The still, cold air stung his nose. With the carbine nestled between his legs to keep it warm, he pulled a heavy wool blanket over his neck and shoulders and positioned the tarp around himself. He questioned how good it was to feel so well-fed before going out to take the first night watch shift. The urge to doze would be strong. Night watch was more often about hearing things approach than seeing them. That Christmas night, there was so little sound. No wind, or owls, or distant coyotes. A million stars made the sky glow. It felt corny, yet appropriate, to sing in his head. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. It might seem a little odd, listening to a story with snow and Christmas carols during a hot August, but it's actually kind of appropriate. I was writing Hunger Season during a summer. That posed a bit of a challenge, trying to describe the characters feeling very cold while I was sweating in front of a fan. My reading it now, during a summer, has a sort of ironic appropriateness to it. Well, for me, anyhow. This episode also marks the one-year anniversary of when I posted Chapter One of Book One. It's been an interesting experience, and it's been great having all of you along for the ride. Connecting with many of you has been a big plus that I, frankly, hadn't anticipated. I really do appreciate the encouragement from my Buy Me a Coffee supporters and members and my patrons on Patreon. Your support means a lot to me. Thanks. <laughs>